Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Unfounded Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the utility of protests and for this podcast we were lucky enough to talk to Claudia Tazrider who actually taught Brienne and Ashraf who are members of our research team. Um, at the moment she's teaching in Lingshipping University and she's teaching ethnic and migrant studies but she also has a continuing close relationship with UNSW as an associate professor. Her research is primarily focused on the experience of migrants and particularly refugees, but her interests more widely include citizenship and the way Australians understand their role in politics and everyday life, which is why we're so lucky to have her on the topic of protests. So Claudia is obviously in Sweden at the moment and we're in lockdown in Sydney anyway, so the conversation took place over Zoom, but I'm really excited for you guys to hear everything she had to say. And um, yeah, let's get into it. Thank you so much for being here with us, Claudia. The first question to kind of help us at the tone for the podcast is whether you think protests have a lasting political impact and whether they have the capacity to foster institutional change. Um, well, hi. It's actually a really complex question uh, because, um, you know, protest can have a lasting political impact and protest can foster um, larger change. But of course, it depends on the nature of the protest and the origins of the protest. So the way I would answer that question is to take a step back and think about why protests occur and what the capacity is for change from protest. So for me, protest um, uh, and protest events operate within a, a broader sphere of um, what's called civil society. So. Um, the way I would think about that is how can someone who's a member of a society, so a citizen or a permanent resident or even a temporary resident, so someone who's living in a particular nation state, a particular jurisdiction, how do they come to have a say over the things that occur where they live? And when they um, feel that there's something awry or there's something occurring that they don't agree with, what means do they have to voice their concerns. So in other words, what kind of voice does a citizen have? And I think that's where protest comes in because before people get on the streets and protest, they might try to do a range of other things to have their voices heard, right? So they might seek to speak to their members of parliament, they might seek to have a voice in the media, uh, they might seek to be members of various organisations, so civil society organisations, community organisations, student organisations, where through that kind of activism or organisation, people seek to have a voice. But I think protest happens when people get the sense that they're not being listened to, that they have a frustration and think that decisions are being made that affect their lives, that affect the lives of their friends, their families, their loved ones, over which they have little control or sometimes no control, and they feel frustration because they feel as though they're not listened to, they become invisible. And that's where I think we see protest occurring. Surprisingly enough, the whole time we were talking about it, we didn't actually consider that as an almost, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, like as like a last resort, um, type of way to view it um, and so like it's interesting to think that before somebody makes a decision to like physically go somewhere they've already gone through their kind of like other resources that they have to try and make change in whatever area that they're seeking to make change so that's really really interesting um, and in that sense and kind of bringing up the kind of physically being somewhere um, 
what what constitutes a protest for you and like do you think that's changed at all with like especially social media yeah i think that you know new technologies and social media have absolutely changed um, the nature of protest but also the nature of civil society the nature of how we can organize and um, and feel a sense of community or feel a sense of belonging so traditionally, um, in uh, what we would call social movement studies, so people who study social movements study protest, right? So there's a whole literature on that. There's a lot of people who research that. And we can look at the history of social movements like the feminist movement, the green movement, um, indigenous rights movements, where the, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, that we would call social movements. In other words, that people have articulated um, a particular topic that they're passionate about and that they want to organise, right? But I think protest, you know, the nature of protest has fundamentally changed with new technologies because people can feel that they're part of something, feel linked and feel a kind of a, a presence, if you like, even when they're geographically very removed, right? Nevertheless, I would say that I think the, the physicality of protest Right. And the other side of that, of course, is the feeling that you're part of something bigger. Right. Um, so it's the nature of what a lot of sociologists study as the nature of the crowd. Right. That when we look at human behavior, people um, uh, often behave differently when they're on their own or when they're with, you know, themselves and maybe one or two friends. They can behave very differently than they would when they're in a big crowd. Right? So when you're physically in a crowd and you feel as though there's momentum, there's a mood, right? There's either there's jubilation or there's anger, whatever there is, and that in a sense you get, you get dragged along in that crowd. So I think the physicality of protest traditionally, as we understand it, is, is also really important. And I think for a lot of young people, that opportunity to, um, to protest uh, in a geographically um, fixed space where you're there with others, where you've got banners, where you um, have chants, you know, where you have slogans that, and you, or you're singing or you're drumming. And um, that sense of a felt experience, right? So the, the, um, the emotion of, of the protest is really important as well. And I think a lot of um, social movements that we see continuing have that nature of even though social media might connect them and they might be connected through virtual networks internationally, but what we tend to see, and so this is certainly the case with the Black Lives Matter um, movements, right, starting in the US but escalating to many, many parts of the world, including Australia, I think it's also the fact that there are localised physical protests um, and events right, events, um, demonstrations, protests, um, events around statues, for example, right? That's, I think that's also important. So I, I think even though social media has certainly changed the nature of protest, I think as human beings, the, uh, the need to be physically present and to have, to feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself is still important. And I think the people who organise um, social movements and organised protests are often very cognisant of that. 
Yeah, and I was just about to like say how like I think that explains um, what we were talking about before in terms of um, it's like Ashraf, um, Brian, and I in terms of like um, use, using social media to connect with people who share your beliefs and you share your values about something, but then kind of like also utilizing it to get together in person to hold protests or organize protests, um, where that might not necessarily have been possible um, without the technology that we have available now. So because people can connect with similar, um, others with similar ideologies, um, they're able to form that bond and kind of come together in person as well. So it's like less evolution and more um, like utilizing the technology to benefit protests in person. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I would I would also say that there is, of course, also another side to all of this, which is, um, which is that protests uh, today, are, um, they can be more difficult for the organisers, for the people who have a particular vision in mind, right? So that, that whoever it is and whatever the, the topic of the protest is, that the core organisers might have a particular goal in mind, right? A, poli- a particular political impact, a particular change to policy or to legislation or to social attitudes. So often protest is, is yes, it's speaking to perhaps political leaders, but protest is often also about informing the general public, hey, don't you know that this happened and this happened and this is an issue, you should care about this, right? But the point I wanted to make is that in contemporary protest and because of the nature of social media, it's also much more likely, and we see a lot of this, that a protest or a social movement becomes hijacked by other uh, groups, by other ideologies, if you like. And because of the nature of online um, organising, it's, it's much easier, of course, for a protest and for a social movement to be visible to counter groups, right? So, to so, for example, let's say you've got a, a, a protest that's about Black Lives Matter, that also brings in um, some issues to do with Indigenous communities. It might also bring in issues to do with refugee politics. But suddenly, you see um, uh, some neo-nationalist groups also making a counterclaim and perhaps turning up and so on. And those things are, of course. Um, um, may happen much more readily in this online environment where things are much more visible. So on the one hand, it's more open, more people know about it. But on the other hand, there is this other aspect that I think we need to be very aware of. And um, it is also ca- uh, the case that I think often political leaders and even um, uh, media commentators sometimes find it easier to dismiss or to criticise protest because they'll say, you know, look, there's that ratbag element that's turned up, right? Yeah. Where the protest organisers have, in a sense, sometimes lost control of the, the core ethos of what they wanted to protest about. So I think that's something we also have to be aware of. Yeah, that was... That was so amazing listening to you about that. Um, yeah, like, so so I guess, like, let me just, like, make sure I understand what you were saying. Um, so do you mean, like, because there is so much visibility for protests, um, there can be, it can inevitably be representing something that it didn't intend to pro- um, represent initially. And so, like, Absolutely. grow into, okay, yeah. And then that, therefore, also opening itself to, a, like, attack, so to speak, from other groups who could be feeling the opposite way um, because of that yes. visibility as well. Okay, awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't think we can take for granted that protests um, on a particular topic or issue manifest the same way in different societies. And so from my perspective and from the sort of research that I've done over many years looking at um, civil societies, right, civil societies and the places where people organise, where they understand their belonging and so on, I've studied many different societies in relation to attitudes towards immigrants and particularly refugee communities, but also um, uh, to, with Indigenous populations. And I think there you see um, really manifest that Australia often has a very different um, has a very different approach and a very different kind of civil society to many other uh, nation states. So I think it is really worthwhile when you're looking at something like protest to look at the um, the political cultures and the civil societies in different countries and see how they manifest. Um, that you know, on the one hand, when we study protest and we study civil society, there is a term that's called global civil society, and there's a lot written about that where people understand that, um, you know, protests are linked across jurisdictions and that on certain value systems, let's say human rights, right, that human rights is a, is a, is a global value system that at its heart um, undercuts and defies particular countries, right? So human rights values are supposed to be global. They're about humans, not about Australians or Germans or Zimbabweans, right? And so in that sense, when we look at um, um, protest and social movements about human rights, they often have that kind of ethos. This is not about just people who have an Australian passport or an American passport. This is about fundamental values of humanity. But um, but nevertheless, I, I do think that national jurisdictions make a big difference and... Um, my view is that Australia historically doesn't have a very strong and a very robust civil society. It's not a society that historically has been open to or really done very much in terms of uh, having, having a very active civil society that's about protest, that's about social change. Um, so when you compare Australia to many European countries, for example, um, I think the history of protest is not as strong in Australia. Um, and I think a lot of Australian citizens are a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of people being on the street and protesting. I think it depends on the issue, but certainly uh, uh, I think you often don't see the mass movements in Australia that you do in other countries. Yeah, and do you think that's because of the government and how they've responded to like previous and maybe initial protests and waves of protests such as like green bans or is that just like something that we've observed? So I think it's about, it, it's, I, I don't think we can just point to government on these sorts of issues. I think, it's, um, I think it's actually more important to look at society and to look at um, the role and the, 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 the beliefs of individual citizens, of individual members of the polity, and and the sort of attitudes they have towards their own citizenship. So how meaningful is their citizenship? 
Um, and how do they see their citizenship as active? What voice do they see? And why don't they think that it's important for them, their friends, their, their family members, their children, to be um, to have a loud voice and to perhaps protest when uh, things are going awry? Um, so my view is that it's actually important not always to point to whoever is in political power, not always to point to the government, but to really look at that relationship between um, the representatives and the citizens. So in political theory, the citizen is actually in charge of the sovereign. In, in our case, in uh, liberal democratic societies such as Australia, the sovereign is the government, right? But, um, you know, there is this supposed to be this reciprocal relationship between the representatives and the citizens. And that's where I think in Australia uh, that understanding of citizenship has really um, or, or remains quite thin. And I actually think we need to have much more robust public debates about yeah. how average Australians see their role and why they don't think it's important for them to be much more active. That doesn't mean that they need to be on the streets every other day, but, you know, how do they see their membership in the political community? How do they see that being enacted? Yeah, right? yeah, that's really, yeah. And I think, um, I guess, like, a potential way to look at it maybe is whether they feel that they'll be... Um, supported by their peers and whether like and like we were talking about before and kind of like when that's in person there is a certain like energy and drive when you're with that crowd but I wonder if that's also coming from people feeling like they won't have that support and they won't be able to um gain the kind of like support yes I can't think of another word um from their from like their fellow citizens um and therefore like that's what's kind of making them more hesitant to participate but again looking at the fact that we spoke about social media um perhaps this might make it easier and we do see Australians kind of like starting to raise more more of their voice when it comes to like Black Lives Matter or even the protests that we've seen recently um because of COVID and maybe because people can come together and feel already before they even go to the protests that there is support for their beliefs that could be like encouraging them to perform their like um values a bit more do you think that that's happening at all yes look yes i think so i i, I think so i think this again i think there's two sides to this sometimes the nature of a crowd or the the volume and the numbers of people that um uh, that agree or that sign on to a particular issue, right, and that become active. So, again, that doesn't mean that they have to all be on the street at a protest. Some of them may take more of an organising role, right, So, or they might say, okay, well, look, I, you know, I have young children, I can't be in the city all the time and I also don't think protest is necessarily the best way. I'm going to be responsible with my core group of friends for the social media of our particular issue. So I'm going to do all the Twittering, all the tweeting. I'm going to uh, keep the Facebook feeds going and I'm going to do all of, you know, all of those different things on, yeah. on all the different platforms. Um, but, but I don't think necessarily um, numbers and volume uh, always matter. So I think it's just, you know, I think we can ask ourselves that question, what is it that triggers a particular person or a particular, um, you know, group of friends or a particular community? What is it that triggers them to say, okay, I've had enough? 
I need to do something. I need to organize, right? And so I think that's the key word, organize, right? So beyond myself to organize among a, amongst a group, and that's when it becomes an active civil society, uh, where you have this, you know, where you um, uh, internalize and accept that kind of notion that I, as a single person. Um, it's very difficult for me to enact my citizenship and to feel active. But as soon as I'm part of a group, we can organise and we can do things. We can have, we can seek to have a voice. So, an example I would give is um, with the asylum seeker issue and with Australia's refugee policy, where you know an active part of Australian civil society has has really been vocal and done a lot of act activity, right? Not just protests, but a lot of a lot of engaging their voice, both within Australia and also outside Australia, for um, really for three decades now, but particularly for the last twenty years since the Tampa election. So that that was the election after nine eleven. Very active, but it's not it's not the majority of Australian society. It's but it's a, it's a smaller group. But they are very active, and for example, there's a group within that movement. So that the pro-refugee, the you know, let let Australia um, be be kinder and have a more human rights observing approach to refugee policy. That group of Australians. There's this very active group in small rural communities who, again, who give a counter voice and who have set up. Um, Workplaces that are wel- welcoming for refugees who are now settled in Australian society, and who do all sorts of um, community initiatives uh, that counter that, t- that that give a different voice. So I don't think it's always about numbers. It's yeah. it's more about commitment, and it's about this moment where someone says, "Okay, I need to make my citizenship meaningful." It's more than just voting every three years or so. It has to be more than that. Mm. In terms of just sort of like um, going back to the the general utility then, um, do you think that the main point and the kind of main takeaway from what you've said so far would be that even if that they do have the capacity to have blasting political impact, so as long as the people who are participating in them have like a more active approach and in, in saying active, it's not just limited to participating and just going to the protest. It's also got to do with, you know, other aspects of that, whether that's paying more attention to what the government is doing and being more um, being more present when discussions about political issues are happening and things like that. So is that what the kind of like direction that we're taking this is in? Uh, yes, Mega, I think that uh, that. Absolutely, that to think about um, political impact and to think about change, right? What is change from pro- from protest or from um, civil society action more generally? So, so other forms of intervention, not necessarily just being on the street protesting, right? That um, yes, from my perspective, that change doesn't necessarily just have to be seen in terms of um, you know a change to a policy, a change of legislation that the political leaders um, articulate suddenly on a topic in completely different ways. I think that change is, is manifest, and I think for me this is the real importance. Can we see um, change and evolution in the people who are part of the movement? 
that's where I think the real power is. And that's where, from my point of view as a sociologist who's interested in studying society, and so not always... So political scientists, you know, are interested in looking at political systems and they would look at Canberra, right, Uh, and the decision-makers, whereas sociologists and also anthropologists are uh, interested in panning back a little bit but also looking at looking at an issue and looking at um, power relationships from the bottom up. So really looking at it and, and asking ourselves, how can we study society or societies and how can we study trends such as protests, social change, from the people who are involved? And so in terms of the discussion we're having today, it's thinking about, you know, citizens members of a a particular society, members of what we call a political community, and that uh, is protest and is this kind of action that we're talking about, right? We're talking about collective action. Mm -hmm. Is it manifest also in change in those individuals? And I think that for me that's the really interesting thing, you know. Um, Are people, as you say, are they looking and um, investigating and looking for information, right? Look, reading history, understanding how we got to where we are today, that Australian society, you know, in, in 2021 didn't just drop out of the sky. It, it, it's a slow roll over many, many years, obviously, of white settler society and then the society that was there before settlement and to understand today and what people do and don't do as a, a, a manifestation, as a kind of a continuation of, um, of history. So I think for me that's where it's interesting and that's where also politicians are very cognizant of the fact that power resides actually with you, right? They know that. They know that power actually doesn't rest with them, that they need to convince the public. The public is bigger than them and the public is actually more powerful than them. And, you know, private business is also very cognizant of that, that you all are actually the decision makers. So we see that around um, the environmental movement, right, that that both politicians but also business know full well that if Greta Thunberg's argument gets through to enough young people, profit-making business needs to change the way they do their business, otherwise they will not make profits, right? And we can see that now. We can see that in the debates and Australia's being frozen out because because of its approach to climate change. Um, And it's uh, it's business, it's for-profit companies that are forcing the government into change because they know they will lose money if Australia doesn't change its policies. So, you know, that's how I would answer that question, um, is that the power rests with you. That, yeah, (laughs) left of it speechless. Um, Yeah, no, that's, that's, Amazing. And I like, as you were talking, I was just literally just about to bring up, um, we're, we're kind of like doing some research on some research, sorry, on sustainable fashion. And we were talking about how, um, like it's 
if people if enough people decided that they will choose nothing else but sustainable fashion then that will kind of force people like capitalist companies or just companies who are profit making to make changes because you know they will be left with no other options and that's the same with um when black lives matter was happening and just from like you know like my point of view and having engaged in social media during that time um there were a lot of people talking about like the protests and um like posting on social media but it was amazing to see also some people kind of like take a step back and um create genuine change in their lives and the way they approached um certain things that they would never never re- otherwise reconsidered and so i think that's just such a like such a valuable insight to kind of be like yes we should be outspoken about this but also an important way to make genuine change is to change our behaviors and our outlooks towards these things so that that can be if enough people feel that way that can be outwardly reflected um just due to lack of choice by the government and by the other like um, you know much stronger companies who we think are in charge at the moment when they're actually not that's actually really empowering as well and i think just to kind of like round out the discussion um one of the things we definitely spoke about in the very like introductory podcast and one of the reasons why we wanted to do this was also to help people feel um less helpless um because mm. of the kinds of discussions we have on social media there's a tendency to just feel like well what do i do like what do i do and i think it's mm. really nice and a really good takeaway to feel like well as long as you are implementing these subtle changes you are already doing so much um because you and if like if enough people like you are doing these things and are changing their mindset then that's already contributing to a bigger change than we consciously can realize um and i think that's super super cool Yeah look I think I I think what you've just said um what you've just said there mega really connects with contemporary social movement and contemporary social change and that is that you know not everyone can for a whole range of reasons uh be on the streets right be physically protesting or necessarily be um you know very active in a particular um non-government organization or group of whatever kind uh but nevertheless because of the nature of new technologies we can inform ourselves and we can organize and we can have a sense that um you know as you say that i can make a choice i can the small decisions that i make about my buying patterns about um uh what media i subscribe to about what kind of um language i use in posts that i make there's a whole range of things that we can do where we do um uh we can understand our everyday actions as being part of a larger group but there i would also say it is important and that's why you know i'm a um a, a very strong advocate for lifelong learning that um education and access to education is i think well it is a fundamental human right right but i really believe in that that uh, notion of access that people should have access to education so that they can continue to build their knowledge and to be informed and to know to have the means of accessing diverse sources of information um and that also means that you can feel part of something uh and that your everyday decision making matters because you know if you're working within a certain value system that you recognize that you have made this kind of deliberative choice of this particular value system that aligns with that social movement and you know that uh, strategy yeah. for change 
than your all of your decision making, right? In terms of um, food choices, in terms of um, clothing choices, um, in terms of which um, utility provider you access, right? All of those decisions do make a great deal of difference, and that's where you know some of those movements. Um, like you know Greta Thunberg's now global movement, where Australia also has you know very young school-aged children, um, uh, pushing their parents and their grandparents to make decisions, uh, yeah. uh, you know, around utility providers, around car usage, around a whole range of things, and so I think that it is important that we recognise the sum total of individual actions does make a great deal of difference. And I think that's when people can feel, particularly in the circumstances that, you know, Sydney in a lockdown, right, people are in their individual little dwellings feeling isolated, but to to remind people of that sense of empowerment, that um, their decisions matter, and they matter particularly when they feel as though they're connected to a value system. Yeah, that's awesome. Um... I, that's a really good point to kind of end on. But if there's anything else that you'd like to add, um, but no, I no, think, I think that was yeah, yeah. No, they were great questions. So yeah, thank you. No, thank you so much. Like your and your input was amazing, and I think um, it's great because you brought out so many things that we definitely didn't think about, but they were so valuable, and we really, really um, appreciate that. So thank you so much. So that was the interview with Claudia. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as I enjoyed talking to Claudia and hearing her take on protests. Make sure you follow us on your podcast listening app and Instagram because we'd love to hear your thoughts on these topics and suggestions on what we can talk about. See you guys next time. Bye.